uh, going further in our first steps in spirituality. I want to focus on another another aspect of that today. And this is in one of the letters that Rebishal Salanta writes to his Talmud, his student, Rebbe Isla Peterberger. And he speaks about the process of spiritual growth, which is really what we're talking about. And the process of spiritual growth, he says, Person, he speaks about a specific kind of spiritual practice known as Limbala Musa, which is a very powerful form of, it's actually a kind of a synergy of multiple meditational disciplines. Um, and it's a very powerful thing. But a person, you know, a person who would engage in this kind of spiritual practice may find that he's not really feeling the, he's not feeling the growth. But on a general level, very often it's hard to gauge one's growth and you know, I've often spoken to people and seen with myself and thought, well, how much have I progressed? How much have I changed? And in that, in that narrative, I think the word change is more of an operative one than progress because Progression and improvement really may just mean I take the old messed up self and make it better. Uh, it's a little bit like Einstein's don't use the crooked thinking that created the problem to solve it. Look for a new way of thinking. And really the basis of progression in life is not based on becoming better. It's based on becoming different. You want to challenge the axioms that are guiding your life because they could be extremely limiting. The minute you cap or you frame your personality type or your talent range or your skill set, you fix it, so then you become essentially trapped. And you deprive yourself of the opportunity of uncovering new new dimensions of who you are and possibly a whole new lease of life from discovering another dimension of your inner self. Um, One of my experiential examples of this is the idea of um, not the idea of the um, putting yourself out of your comfort zone as as a as a child and as less adolescence young adult I was extremely shy and socially awkward. It'd be very difficult for me to approach people, to speak to them. Um, speaking, yeah, speaking in front of, 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 I was, I was awkward. I was socially, I was very shy. But I was put into a situation where, in a teaching role, I had to overcome the shyness, and now, I actually don't, don't feel shy at all. I don't know if you've noticed that. <laughs> you know, often when I say to people, when I say to people that I was, as a as a young man, very shy, they find it very hard to believe, because I've discovered a part of myself, or maybe a more coherent part of myself that is actually very engaging, outgoing, connecting. But it was it was buried underneath stuff. So what happens if, like, I kind of fix myself as well? I'm shy, so I'll try to become um, work on having intimate relationships and not speaking to lots of people but you know like the Catholic classic 
mode of interaction of an introvert. But actually, I wasn't an introvert. I just had issues. <laughs> and therefore, I, I, I felt like, oh, I'm shy, but I wasn't, I, de- I desperately wanted the connection of people. I, d- I did want to connect. I didn't, actually, I didn't get energized by withdrawing. I got de-energized with withdrawing, which I think is a def- def- defining point between extrovert and introvert. It's introverts are energized by being alone, and extroverts are energized by connecting to people. Um, yeah, and there's many examples that I've found in my life that through exposing myself to different stimuli, so then I discover parts of myself that I never, I never could have expected. One stupid example. Um, growing up, I was very scared of heights. I wouldn't be jumping off high places. Now I enjoy that thrill. You're probably wondering, well, when do you do that? When well, you jumping? Yeah, well, one of the advantages of being Kirov Rabbi is that you perpetually are going on adventure hikes. It's like, you know, the normal person, the normal path of life, that's what you do from like, you know, ages 20 to 25, 26. But when you're involved in Kirov, that's your age group that you're always working with. <laughs> So you perpetually, even as I age, still going the same hikes and doing the cliff jumping thing, which is which is thrilling. <laughs> um, so none of those things would be possible unless I. But on a more fundamental level, the way that I've pivoted in terms of my way of relating to people, my way of relating to Torah, my way of relating to Hashem, my way of relating to Brachos, my way of relating to learning—it's pivoting the whole time, pivoting the whole time. And that's what makes life engaging and exciting. Getting better gets quite boring after a while, and it's like it's like same old, same old, just a little bit better. Being different is really exciting because I have no idea where it's going to take me. So the whole point of life is the change, but the difference of the change. But that's not always easy to implement. So as a person moves forward, you may start to become extremely frustrated that as you try harder and harder to move forward, you already feel like you're treading water and staying in the same place. So Abishal Salanta addresses this by saying, When you see that you're engaged in this process and you actually just aren't being affected, you don't feel there's any real traction in implementing change. And I think there's probably no more powerful time to discuss this than during the Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur period where actually the focus is very pertinently and um, emphatically on change. But then you think back, even those who've been through this experience before, and you think, yeah, I had all these aspirations of how much I was going to change, and ill was a time of vision, and a time of hope and aspiration, and so was Rosh Hashanah, and so was Yom Kippur, and then oh, I forgot about it. So <laughs> what happened? I mean, I just kind of blotted from my conscious experience. So, so actually the, the frustration is I'm trying to change, and nothing is really being affected. So says Rabbi Shal, don't worry. Yehidin Emona, if the changes that you're implementing provided you are consciously shifting yourself what occurs on a much deeper level is every time you shift some kind of behavior you do something in a different way you get a new recognition that makes like a small impression on your being small impression and when you do it again it makes another impression when you do it a third time it's the third impression. And the conglomeration, the compounding of these multiple impressions on yourself suddenly shifts your direction profoundly. And then he brings a source to this, which is just magnificent. One of the heroes of the Jewish people, an all-time example of spiritual struggle 
was is Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was a man who had no Jewish education or background. He didn't. He was illiterate at the age of forty. He could not read, and he meets and gets married to a woman who was a spiritual visionary, both in terms of her capacity to be immensely self-sacrificing for a higher goal, and also in terms of her belief and faith in her husband. So she marries a man who's a simple shepherd, can't read. And she says to him, well, how about you start to learn to read? So he says, well, where can I learn to read? So she says, well, go to Cheda. He says, you literally mean that a 40-year-old man should start hanging out with three-year-olds. That's mortifying. Why, well, when you sit there, I mean, I have to bring in my own chair because I've got a little chair. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, she says, okay, well, you don't want to do it? He says, no. He says, how about this? If you're not going to do that, do this. Take a donkey, put a potted plant in the back of the donkey, and walk the donkey through town. So he says, well, look, that's better than sitting in a cradle with little kids. So for sure, I'll do that. And he takes his donkey to town, and everyone looks at him and says, well, what's going on with you? This is absurd. Or, 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 you're giving your pot of plant a ride in the donkey? I mean, you, you must be insane. And everyone laughed at him and jeered at him and, you know. And the next day, she says, okay, do it again. So he does it again. And this time, come with people starting to get used to it. And they don't really notice as much. And there's less pushback. On the third day, no one bats an eyelid. So she says to him, okay, what are you going to do now? So he says, well, I guess I'll go to Cheda because, you know, first day we're going to laugh, man with what big, big beard with kids who, who like, you know, are still struggling to, to toddle. Um, and then that's going to be a really funny day one and day two, it's going to be a little funny and by day three it will just be that's what it is. So he goes and he starts learning and he learns and learns and learns and learns. And then there's this time when it becomes despondent he comes despondent about his learning he says I'm not getting anywhere and of course when he says he's not getting anywhere it doesn't, didn't only mean that he's not accumulating enough knowledge he meant they didn't feel how this is changing him as a person and he goes for a walk and he comes to um, a well and in the well there's a stone that has been hollowed through by the water. And you say, well, who made the hole? Who made the hole in the stone? So it was the water. When did it make that hole? At what point did the water make that hole? Well, at no point. Because what happened was the water over the course of years and years and years flowed in a particular way that started to imperceptibly wear away at the surface of the rock and wear away just a little bit more and it had a specific stream and direction that wear away a little bit more and there was a minor indent in the rock and the water was flowing to there creating another imperceptible change and then further and eventually the water pierced the hole through the rock Rabbi Akiva saw this and he pulled out his Talmudic thumb and he said water which is so soft can make a whole change, shift a rock which is so hard the Vaitoya which are so powerful they compared to fire 
surely they can make a hole in my heart which is so soft and fleshy. That's what he said. Rabbi Salanta says, but in the same way. The same way that water made the hole in the stone will turn make a hole in my heart. The hole in my heart means change my experience of being. And how did the water do it? Day after day, time after time, imperceptible remnants left, impressions created on my being. And therefore that's, that, that's, and I see it. You say to me, you're Baruch Hashem, I've been married 30 years. So tell me, like, what's your, what's your Shalom Ba'ez like? Someone may say. So I say, in progress. <laughs> in progress. Meaning, I feel like in the last year and a half, maybe in the last six months, there's been major strides forward. Now, I, I, so I'm not suggesting that my marriage has been a debacle until like six months ago and <laughs> 29 and a half years worth of hell. No, it's been great. It's been great all along. But it's better and it's better. And so I would start to think, bad, maybe I'm just, me- I am messed up. But maybe my marriage is a reflection of my messed up kite, my messed upness. But then I have a precedent. This is the most amazing precedent. Look at the pillars, the literally, the patriarchs, the spiritual father of faith of all Jews, all Muslims, all Christians, Abraham. So how is his Shalom Bais? Well, let's go take a look at it. Let's go back to the time when he's 99 years old and his wife is 19, which means they're married for longer than I. But they weren't only married. They were like spiritual superheroes. Spiritual superheroes. But Abraham, when he takes his wife Sarah to Egypt, he didn't even have the capacity to see her This is the most powerful, powerful moment. He's taking her to Egypt. Okay? He's walking past a pool of water. And he receives a reflection in the pool. And he looks at the reflection, and the reflection is of a woman who is extremely beautiful. And he looks up, and he sees it's his wife. He says, Behold, you are a beautiful woman and he decides to hide her so that she wouldn't be abused. But he's been married for years and years. So Rashi says he hadn't looked at her until then because of the hiddenness, the intimacy in their relationship. One second. He hadn't looked at her. You know, we're all in the room together. Imagine having an ongoing relationship day after day, hour after hour, doing a lot of things together and not seeing the person you're dealing with it and you're completely sighted, it literally would be an impossibility. How would you avoid seeing them? What, every time you get within their proximity, you close your eyes and fumble around? No, of course not. Meaning, it was obvious that Abraham saw Sarah. In fact, it's a halakhic requirement to see your spouse before you get married. So he must have looked at her just from a purely halakhic perspective. So what does it mean when Rashi says he didn't see her? It means he'd never seen her separate from her essence. He never had the temptation to cut off, as it were, her physical self from her essential essence. He didn't see her as a body and as a face. He saw her as a person. So when he saw her as a person, he was incapable of evaluating, is she objectively 
beautiful or not. Well, he doesn't know. He just knows Sarah. When he saw a reflection of her, which was separate from that interaction, then all of a sudden he thought, wow, that is a beautiful physical form. Until then, he hadn't seen that. So you're talking about a person that when the relationship began, there was a depth and a power to an intimate and deep connection. And that was in the beginning and only got better and better and better. And now we're going probably 50, 60, 70 years into their marriage and they get a vision. And there are three divine beings that approach them. And they ask them, and where is your wife Sarah to Avram? And Rashi points out, to show Abraham how appreciative he has to be of his wife's humility. So one second, whose marriage are they trying to help out over here? Abraham and Sarah? Are you joking? Like these are the ultimate marriage where every person would only ever dream and even they need a little bit of a push and show advice. So what do I see from this? Well, I'm okay. <laughs> I'm okay, meaning it's a process. It's really a process. And therefore the fact that, you know, the truth is if you would have met me five years ago and you would have said, how's your marriage going? I would have said, I feel like in the last couple of years it's improved dramatically. But I'm saying that now as well and I'll probably be saying that in the next three years as well. Because that's what life is all about, isn't it? You actually never get there. It's all this process. And that's really what Trevor Israel is pointing out. It's a process and it's slow. It's slow. It's really slow. I feel like I'm moving forward for another example in my Tai Chi. But my Tai Chi teacher always said to me, what should you answer people when they say to you, how is your Tai Chi going? And the answer is, slowly. <laughs> slowly. But it goes slowly. But you have these like inklings of insight. So now, why is this so important for us to discuss in the first steps of spirituality? Because we have a world which demonstrates categorically that this process is not the way things should be. We used to have a world which was supportive of gradual, incremental process. We now have a world which is absolutely in opposition to process and is grounded in results and oh my gosh are they quick so let's just turn the clock back within my lifetime and I'm only 53 years old even though I appear to be a 22 year old but I'm actually 53 years old but I remember my childhood the challenge of photography well you had a camera in the camera you had something called a spool or a film you insert it into the back of the camera and you had either 12, 24, or 36 pictures available to you on that spool. Now imagine, people bought 12 pictures, which meant you'd go on a holiday and in the entire period of your holiday you had an opportunity to take 12 pictures. So let's say, you know, people are a little bit more extravagant, they got 24. And the super, you know, remember the rich kids, they got the 36. So after the course, over the course of a week they had an opportunity to take 36 pictures. Now imagine, when you took that picture, you had no idea how it was going to come out. Because you didn't have a screen. You just had a viewfinder. So you had to look through a viewfinder. If you had an SLR, so it actually went straight through the lens. But if you didn't, you had like a little viewfinder on the top. And you'd think, is this a great picture? It's not a great picture. Because once I pull the, pull the button, push the button, it's over. So then you took your 24 pictures. And then you had to hand them in to the 
to the to the chemist or wherever you got your photographs developed, and you'd have to wait a week or so to get them back, because there was you know there was a there was a process. So you took your twenty four pictures, which you'd taken over the period of a week when you went on your holiday, and then you don't nothing happens from the moment you took that first picture for like two and a half weeks, and then after two and a half weeks with trepidation and excitement you're given a paper bag and you can feel the weight of those photos inside and eagerly you take it home a little bit gingerly a little bit apprehensive to actually open it up and see how did those photos come out were they in focus weren't they in focus did I capture the composition right what they're going to look like and you look at the photos and some of them are bad like really, you know, like then you get the random photo where you slipped and then like there was one picture down and like this is it's like half your shoe for perpetuity. Um, so, so life told me, life around me told me their processes. Take the same example, plop it into 2021. So how many photos do I take on a holiday? 500, 600, 700? When do I know when do I know when if the photo is good or bad? On the spot. No process. There is no process. The process just disappeared. When I first came to Yeshiva, so my primary means of communication with my parents was letter writing. So to write a letter meant the following process. You had to, well I actually bought a thing called an aerogram which meant it was a single sheet of paper that you didn't have to put a stamp on, so it was way more convenient. And because it was only a certain weight, because you had to be careful that letters which were heavier required more postage. So this aerogram was a set weight, so you just bought 20 aerograms, and then you could just write on them, and if you write small, you could really include a lot of information, and I would send an aerogram to my parents. And then every night, there'd be this event at supper, where they brought out because all the letters were sent to Osamach, and they brought out these big boxes, which had arranged alphabetically, and you go and look and see if you received any letters. So if I wanted to communicate with my parents, and I wanted to share with them what happened, they said, last Shabbos. So on Sunday, I'd write, I'd write them, I'd sit down and write them, with pen, ink, paper, write them a letter, which would take me, I don't know, 45 minutes, an hour. Then I would have to find a post box to put the letter in. And there would have to be someone that would collect the letter, put it to Central Depot, and eventually get it off to South Africa where my parents lived. And then they would have to get the letter, arrive at them, however long that took, read the letter, choose to respond to the letter. So the communication took, let's say, from the time that I wrote my letter to me getting a reply, could be a month to six weeks, if not longer. That's if they replied immediately. And that was a primary means of communication because there was no international calls were exorbitantly expensive. And the conversations when I would find my parents once every two weeks, collect call, because it was like, you'd speak, speak for two minutes, and it would be like $100, or whatever it was, today's equivalent. So this is how the conversation would go. Hello, hi Ma, how are you doing? Good. How are things going there? Yeah, right. And you? Fine. Okay, bye. Boom. So now, that told me that there's a process. Now, when I want to communicate with a person, not only do I need not I can send them an email, but I can send them a WhatsApp. But I can send them a voice message of WhatsApp. I can send them a photo. I can send them a video. I can just call them on a video call. We can speak on FaceTime. We can speak on Skype. We can speak on Zoom. We can. There's no. There's no process. There is no process. 
So we are conditioned by the world around us, as with all these magnificent technological advances, which are incredible, and they've really pushed us forward, but they've also done something else. They've removed the notion of process from our lives, and they shifted it to the ethos of result. So now when I think about my own personal change, well, I can do a photo, 500 on the spot, I can communicate without any gap in time, so now my marriage should be fixed in the first, I don't know, listen, I realize it's a relationship, I'll give it a year. No, 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 no. 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, that's a kind of a ballpark. And my own personal change, how long should that take? Well, you know, I've, I have been working myself for the last month. Nice. Give yourself a decade or two. <laughs> you ready to get somewhere. Give yourself a decade. And the, because, because we're so unused to this notion, it corrupts our relationship with self because we have no idea of measuring progress. How do I measure progress in a world where results are instantaneous? One would think that, well, listen, I worked on this ability to be calm for over a week and I haven't moved forward. So then my conclusion would be, wow, messed up. Because I don't understand the nature of the process and that working on this problem for over a week is a really great beginning. It's already, it's, you've stepped onto the path. Well done. Now just stay in the path for another two or three years and you can really, you'll see subtle, you'll see subtle changes. That's where we're at. And without this understanding, your spiritual journey will become immensely frustrating and tormenting. And now as I say these words, you also are going to make the association back to a couple of days ago when together we studied the words of the Vilna God who's commenting on Mishle and says, that the foolishness of a person distorts, corrupts his way. And we explained that this was when a person wanted to do too much too soon in his spiritual development and he inevitably would collapse from the pressure, blame Hashem who didn't help him. And the Vilna Gaon's retort to that is, you can only be helped when you progress according to the next step in your development. And then you'll get some kind of push, but then and only then. So what's the next step? So we have a very distorted vision of predicting what the next step should be. And that requires self-knowledge and knowledge of the process of gradual growth. Growth is gradual. Gradual, but exciting. Don't think by the fact that it's so slow that it's also not engaging and revitalizing. In fact, it's only slow relative to the world we live in. In terms of internal satisfaction and perspective, one tiny shift is immensely fast and groundbreaking. So if I can share you an example from my life of what, what is a subtle, profound change. Just recently, in my presence in the natural world, I've become entranced, literally. First time in my life, to this degree, I'm mesmerized by light the different shades of light there are, the evening light, the morning light, the bright midday light, the way that the light shows off the colors and bounces off shadows. It's its just mesmerizing. And I'll try to share that with someone. And I'll say, what are you talking about? 
I said, well, don't you see the way that the light's delicately weaving its way through this collection of trees? Now, I'll almost be breathless. Now, how long do they take me? I don't know, I imagine years of gently trying to be aware of my environment and present in my own space and noticing the nuances of the delicate edge of a leaf and being aware of the another thing as I walk down the road being aware of the different textures of the air that blows against me and you find that when I don't know if you've ever had this experience when swimming in a lagoon or in the sea that you'll hit a warm current in the middle of swimming it'll be cold and then you'll go into a warm patch that's familiar to you not because there's a kid sitting next to you. <laughs> that, that, that generally happens in a pool. Um, but actually, when, you, when you're in the water, you can feel quite profound, like when you go in and out of cold and warm patches. So I've started to gain the sensitivity walking in and out of air. I can start to sense the cold and the warm and the colder patches in the air and in the breeze. And so my life has become so much deeper, so much more profound, but it's taken me years and years and years of focused work so really what I'm sharing with you is that spiritual endeavor is a long term process where the goals are not the issue but the direction is and there's a difference between goals and direction when a person sets a goal it becomes almost an obsession to ask the question that we keep on asking ourselves are we there yet? Are we there yet? But when you set yourself a direction, so it's not about getting there, it's about going there. Do you understand the difference between, you need to have direction, you can't have direction, just floundering. Direction, specific direction, destination, orientation, yes! But not goals. Because it's not about getting there, it's about going there. It's not about getting there, it's about going there. And we're going there. So when I look at you and you look at me, we're all going there. And therefore, Talmud Chochem is the way we describe a Jewish sage. What a funny way to describe a Jewish sage, a wise student. Why is he a student? Why isn't he a teacher? Because we're always getting there. We're always only getting there. So essentially, the difference between you and me is I've just got like, you know, more, more street cred. I've been around the block more times. But fundamentally, we, we're in the same boat, always getting there. It's not like, oh, I've got there. Now let me help you. No, no. We're all getting there. And so we can share our journeys together. And that's the point. It's about going there, not getting there. And when you can accept the fact it's about going there, not getting there, so it releases a lot of unhealthy pressure that keeps on judging you for not being somewhere where you couldn't be anyway. And you can just move from within, like the Quran says. Take the next step from within and not some kind of artificially created vision of self that you have to match yourself with. And you start to resonate with your deeper inner core, and everything starts to become good and gishmak. So I thought that would be a very important direction in spiritual growth. Thank you for spending the time together.